Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and how they got to the White House. But more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always with me, the man, the myth, the legend, the one that actually writes the scripts, does the research, and takes us down the sweet rose of history. Neil, how's it going? Uh, it's going better. Uh, you know, I think in doing these, this last, like, you know, uh, season of just really tough presidents to cover even just like two episodes i feel I, I feel better than i thought i would about kind of like trying to to summarize these people up in the events um it is kind of hard but i mean at least with this there's like enough there's definitely a lot to talk about right so yeah feeling good about that so last time around we we technically did uh, almost the first half of his presidency and now we're left with three terms i want to say <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, well I guess term, technically but, two and a half two and a half terms yeah i mean really more so it's like i did I, i'm thinking of uh, episodes as like a domestic policy episode and like a foreign policy episode so now we're on to what's happening around the world all right so how about you let us know what are we talking about today neil today we're gonna do a part two of the one and only franklin delano roosevelt The year is 1944. World mm. War II is the major event of the year as, as the battle is raging on all fronts. The Nazis and the Empire of Japan trying to take over the world wanted to signal at least or highlight two events because it's literally way too many to cover. D-Day, 155,000 Allied troops shipped from England land on the beaches of Normandy in northern France, beginning Operation Overlord and the invasion of Normandy. Adolf Hitler survives the July 20th, my birthday, plot assassination led by Klaus von, his last name. He and his fellow conspirators in this and Operation Valkyrie are executed the following day. Stepping away from the horrors of war, the 16th Academy Award ceremony is held the first Oscar ceremony held at the large public venue, the Chinese Theater, and Casablanca wins Best Picture. Louis Buchalter, the leader of the 1930s crime syndicate Murdered Inc., is executed in Sing Sing Prison. The United States Forest Service and the Wartime Advertising Council releases the first poster featuring Smokey the Bear, and the 1944 United States presidential election, Franklin D. Roosevelt, wins re-election over Republican challenger Thomas E. Dewey, becoming the only U.S. president elected for a fourth term. Neil, take it away. So we ended part one at the ultimate turning point for this country. The U.S.'s entry into World War II is one of these defining moments for really all the global events that unraveled from then until now. You know, before World War II, the U.S. was definitely established as a power and had the respect of other nations, but it still was a second-tier global leader, I would say. You know, much more concerned with Latin and South America than most other places in the world. And all in all, Americans were fine with that. You know, the majority didn't crave any more expansionism 
through repeated warfare as much as they did throughout the 19th century. By the time we get to the 1930s, you know, taking the position of isolationism in all global conflicts that didn't directly impact the U.S., you know, kind of thrived as the status quo of our foreign policy, while nationalism continued to take off in Europe and Asia. And World War I especially illustrates this dynamic well, as nations like France, Germany, England, and Italy, in a weird kind of way, craved that war at first, at least at a governmental level. You know, a conflict at that scale had not occurred in, you know, about 100 years, and those nations, you know, they were eager to prove that they were culturally superior. You know, in contrast, most Americans wanted nothing to do with World War I. And, you know, upon reflection and its aftermath, you know, we're even more bitter in the decision to get involved in the first place. You know, where, where was the benefit? The U.S. lost 320,000 soldiers. They weren't acquiring any new territory or physical resources. You know, they went through more than a year of rationing food and furthermore lost esteem as global leaders when the U.S. decided not to join the League of Nations, an idea that Woodrow Wilson came up with and popularized with European leaders. So the war, understandably, felt pointless, and Americans further entrenched themselves into an isolationist sentiment throughout the 1920s and 30s. Roosevelt's mandate that he acquired, you know, in winning the elections of 1932 and 1936, you know, by wide discrepancies, you know, they weren't geared towards him changing any of our foreign policy away from isolationism. To remain in good standing, you know, he just had to kind of continue the course. And you know, this is not something that is easy for FDR, whose political heroes were Teddy and Woodrow Wilson. You know, he admired their commitment to charting a path for the U.S. to be a global leader. He thought the U.S. not joining the League of Nations was a mistake and had ambitions to make the U.S. a significant peacemaker again. And so to align himself with the isolationism that dominated the country, though, one of the first actions the U.S. took under FDR was enacting the good neighbor policy. In 1933, ultimately, you know, putting some of the Monroe Doctrine on pause by ending U.S. unilateral involvement in Latin American countries. All U.S. troops were pulled out of Haiti. He removed the unwanted U.S. protectorate status from Cuba and Panama from people living in those countries and even sponsored the idea that no country had the right to invade or intervene with another country at the 1933 Pan-American Conference. Um, this is a pretty tremendous shift from how the U.S. had operated in the Western Hemisphere for its entire existence up until that point. You know, following the Spanish-American War, the period between then and Roosevelt taking office was known as the Banana Wars period, where the U.S. engaged directly in several countries to exploit their resources and grow American wealth, and either taking control of them completely or installing leaders that were given power in exchange for becoming friendly with the U.S. government. Of course, the U.S. wasn't looking to relinquish their wealth and economic power, but more so wanted to obtain a higher ground on morality and ideology to really manipulate these countries into entrenching themselves with American interests. Occupying countries, you know, taking direct military actions, those things also are pretty costly, especially when you're going through an event like the Great Depression. So what better time than now to promote cooperation for the U.S. rather than a policy of taking resources by force? <clears throat> and so. Sustaining a foreign policy of isolationism past the Western Hemisphere in the 1930s, though, was much more tricky. You know, as most people probably know, it was not a quiet decade for global conflict. 
many people think of Germany's invasion of Poland as the start of World War II, but really the first major escalation that took place to set the tone for more global conflict was Japan's invasion of Manchuria in 1931. Uh, you know, Japan would be fighting China essentially from then on until their defeat in World War II in 1945. So this war had a Spoilers. Yeah, you know, it had a, a rippling effect on American interests as the U.S. had a complicated relationship with Japan. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, as, you know, hopefully we remember, won a Nobel Peace Prize for helping to broker a peace in the Russo-Japanese War that put the nation, put both nations on a path to good relations earlier in the century. But, you know, Japan's ambitions of empire made the U.S. more uncomfortable as time went on. The U.S. had colonies in Hawaii. Guam and the Philippines and had the intention of continuing to assert themselves in the Pacific. So to combat, to combat Japan's growing ambitions, Roosevelt normalized relations with the Soviet Union in 1933, the first time the U.S. had done so since their formation after the Russian Revolution. And he hoped that the two nations could work together to calm Japan's escalation. But Considering Russia was still economically and militarily weak from the fallout of World War I and the Depression, nothing really came of this development. And so several major conflicts follow Japan's invasion of China in the 1930s during the most critical years of Roosevelt implementing his New Deal policies. First, we have, you know, Hitler overthrew the Weimar Republic of Germany and established himself as Fuhrer in 1934. Italy, under the leadership of Mussolini, invaded Ethiopia in 1935. Civil war erupts in Spain in 1936, leading to a fascist takeover of Spain in 1939 with the victory of Francisco Franco. Germany marches troops into the Rhineland in 1936 and formally established an alliance with Japan and Italy. In 1938, Germany annexes Austria with no resistance at all. And then Hitler seeks conquest of, Sud of the Sudetenland as part of Czechoslovakia in the same year. And so you have just this quick escalation one by one by one um and we'll get to the part we'll get to you know what the u.s is all doing in this time span but you know neville chamberlain uh the prime minister of britain at the time attempted a peace agreement to give hitler the land if he promised to stop there and it was signed and chamberlain thought he was a hero for saving a world war from happening and then lo and behold hitler still invades czechoslovakia anyway <laughs> um and so september 1st this is where it really breaks out. After Czechoslovakia goes down, everyone kind of knows it's going to happen. On September 1st, 1939, Germany invades Poland, and England and France declare war. So, you know, all of these are incredible world-altering events, and the U.S. during this time span is insistent that it doesn't want any kind of engagement in these developments, you know, which further gives the green light to the Axis powers of taking territory by force. It's important to note that even as the U.S. is not the top military in the world, they earned a bit of a fearful reputation from their efforts in the First World War. And that war was the harshest and most brutal stalemate of four years that any war could ever be. You know, it was just trench warfare of Germany and France picking up a handful of miles of territory every year. Just absolute misery and persistent feelings of pointlessness from soldiers and civilians. And the U.S.'s entry into the war kind of changed that dynamic quickly from them introducing just a massive amount of volume of bodies into the mix where they're eventually able to overrun Germany within a year. And so, you know, as much as Germany was bitter about the First World War and took satisfaction at the thought of revenge for how they were treated in the aftermath, 
they were wary of the U U.S. and what they could do to threaten their objectives. In making this point, the U.S. essentially gifts them what was congressionally pushed under Roosevelt in the passage of the Neutrality Acts from 1935 to 1939. And, you know, the first one really being like the core piece in 1935 imposed a general embargo on trading in arms and war materials with all parties in a war. It also declared that American citizens traveling on warring ships traveled at their own risk. There was a slight provision that gave Roosevelt kind of um, a way to kind of pick a side in the war, um, which was a cash and carry provision. Uh, the president could permit the sale of materials and supplies to nations fighting in Europe as long as the recipients arranged for the transport and paid immediately with cash, uh, with the argument that this could not draw the U.S. into the conflict. And so, you know, seeing as, you know, France and Great Britain, you know, had a pretty big fleet. In the event with the war with Germany, they could, you know, be able to take advantage of that provision if it came to war with them, um, if it came to war between those countries. And so, Roosevelt they were on a they were on a cash only basis. That's that's what they <laughs> yeah. they literally were like cash only. I'm sorry, we don't take credit cards. You know, the fees are so high on the credit cards that it's, we just don't like to pay credit cards. And yeah, it's just I, so awkward because like nobody carries cash anymore. Yeah. Well, was there credit cards even back in the 30s? I don't even know. Yeah. 19, uh, I think 1934 or 1954. One of those two is the first credit card day. Uh, yeah, it had to be. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it sounds kind of like real, real sketchy. Right. It's just all cash for whatever reason. But I don't I mean, it's a uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, I think that, you know, so, like, the transition here with Roosevelt and trying 1950. to... 1950. Sorry. The That's... Diners Club card. So, no, oh, there was no credit card. 1950 card. was the first credit card? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that explains it then. I mean, dang, I can't believe it's... I don't know. I guess I didn't really know what to expect with that, because they're kind of slowly dying away now. So, I guess they had they kind of had a good run of, like, 70 years. Um, you think the credit cards are dying now? Well, I mean, I feel like using a card, a, a, a physical card, that is. I mean, I guess if you want to, if you want to say that, like your phone is still card part of like the credit card era, because people just yeah. use like Apple Pay. I don't know. I feel I mean, like I, a large percentage of our population lives on credit cards, like essentially borrow, borrowing always, since most unfortunately are living check to check. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. True. I just, yeah, I, I was just thinking technologically, like, of how people use money now. Like, I don't know. Mm. So, I mean, like, yeah, I guess credit cards are still kind of, yeah, it's like a weird technical thing to get caught up on. But, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I think we have bigger, bigger issues coming up. From <laughs> yeah. Roosevelt is kind of transitioning, trying to transition the country away from this neutrality, isolationism mentality, albeit, you know, very carefully given that, like, you know, he still wants to keep winning re-election, and, you know, it's not of popular opinion to get involved in this war still with the majority of the American public. And so he's trying, again, like, to make these slow steps. He gives a quarantine speech in 1937, which is, again, outlining sort of this move away from neutrality and more so towards, you know, a quarantining of aggressors, people, you know, countries that are attacking other nations and, like, what would be and so at, at that time, he also imposed a, a moral embargo 
on exports of aircraft to Japan. So he's already kind of positioning the U.S. to side with Great Britain and France. And definitely, you know, like they weren't necessarily involved with, you know, Japan at this point. But, I mean, the U.S. firmly was uncomfortable with Japan's ongoing expansion and invasion of China. And so Roosevelt, again, slowly showing these allegiances, um, deciding to cut off trade with Japan. You know, the cash and care provision was really used as a way to get around neutrality acts and supply Britain with weapons for themselves and their ships that could also transport them to to China as well. And so it did little to deter really any conflict, though. And if anything, it brought war for the U.S. closer with Japan as it took more aggressive action in China to capture land slash, you know, natural resources that they were using for being cut off by the U.S. So in 1939, Germany invaded Poland. And World War II in the European theater officially began. And at the beginning, it's going horribly for U.S. allies. You know, Germany takes over all of continental Europe by 1940, defeating France in just six weeks after they pushed to invade. And for a whole year, from the summer of 1940 until the summer of 1941, Britain was left entirely on its own to fight the Nazis. Like Russia or Soviet Union, that is, wasn't involved in the conflict. They actually signed a neutrality like treaty with uh, Germany just before they invaded Poland. And so Roosevelt was in a terrible bind in how to proceed with a war that is turning the world upside down. You know, nobody could have predicted that Germany would be so successful so quickly. And not getting involved at this point felt like turning your back on democracy, you know, as world leaders were falling to authoritarian ones. Um, You know, the American people had little appetite for war still, though. And, And Roosevelt, again, had limited options of what he could do. You know, he strengthened his friendship with Winston Churchill and got a bill passed in Congress that allowed the U.S. to conduct its first peacetime drafts in 1940, increasing the U.S. military size by 1.2 million people within a year. And he also could, you know, increase production of weaponry to rearm the American military. And it was really all he could do in the context of 1940, which also happened to be an election year. Now, at this point, no president had ever served more than two terms, two full terms, that is. And almost every president who had reached a two full terms up until that point cited the two-term precedent Washington set to step away from running again. Now, the only exceptions up until that point of presidents seeking third terms were Grants in 1880 and Teddy Roosevelt in 1912, who technically didn't seek a third term as he served out the remainder of McKinley's second. You know, but most Americans, even to this day, are very fond of the president Washington set in that it has accomplished its goal for the vast majority of U.S. history in allowing peaceful transfers of power. So, you know, FDR has a big decision to make. Does he honor one of the most important traditions of one of the last remaining powerful democracies in the world? Or does he decide to break precedent to give the world a better chance of saving itself? Uh, you know, many people may not agree with that frame of the situation, but jeopardizing the work that had been done to prepare the U.S. for war would no doubt have had severe consequences if a Republican took office and reversed course. You know, Roosevelt feared the fallout of letting that happen and that Japan probably would have taken over all of China and Southeast Asia unchallenged and that Britain could eventually fall and Hitler would have all of Europe. So. Roosevelt made his decision to run again, and it was telling how conflicted people were with the Washington precedent breaking, as 
his victory was not nearly as much of a landslide as her previous two, only winning 55% of the popular vote. But I'm curious, you said, like, can you, can you backtrack a little bit? So Mm -hmm. maybe I misunderstood. Can you explain again what you think, or maybe what he said was his reasoning again? Like he thought if he didn't win the presidency that they wouldn't go to war. That's what you're trying to imply. Or did I misunderstand? No, no. So he again, he's trying to tell this very careful line of like not guaranteeing that the U.S. is going to be in a war, but also like the way that he framed it was he didn't want to change horses midstream, if that makes sense. Maybe I'd butchered that saying, <laughs> um, but he essentially wanted Japan. Well, like really like say a Republican came into office and didn't impose an embargo on Japan, right? then, you know, they would have all the materials they would need to take over the whole Pacific. And that would, you know, severely, you know, change the trajectory of, you know, what the U.S. in like, you know, what they could do governmentally in spreading their values upon the world. You know, he had a very like world, like, I don't like, you know, like a mentality of like, you know, being an internationalist and spreading, you know, democracy around the world. This is kind of the beginning of that of that effort, really, like in the post-World War II era of like battling communism in a sense, right? Or battling other like forms of government and what should be the dominant type of governments in the world. And the same thing with, you know, Britain, like, you know, he he feared that if a Republican took office, they would take the neutrality acts very, very seriously and they wouldn't be getting weapons out to Britain and Britain would fall like soon after right like they were very dependent on the u.s so he didn't trust he didn't trust somebody else in his party to take over and uphold those values that he's trying to protect from the republican party that would no yeah because he didn't think that they had no one had the experience to do it and also everyone thought i think it was wilkie in that election that wilkie was yet yet he chooses a vice president and harry s truman but yeah i know but it's saying like it's like yeah no but like with wilkie like they thought that he could not no one's gonna be him but roosevelt like apparently he's just a very popular candidate this is like a i think it was like a businessman slash lawyer you know kind of had that outsider status that in americans were kind of kind of flirting with going back to again like a more of a a hands-off government approach after you know eight years of the new deal and whatnot and and that being so different from what everybody was used to. Um, but yeah, do you not agree? I mean, do you think that it was a, do you think that it was, I don't know. Uh, like a, I feel like a, it's um, that you ran for a third term. I don't know. It's like, I guess like it's um, unusual circumstances. Like it's truly not in a, well, we saw it <laughs> literally in world war one, but obviously this one is like a bigger bigger circumstances due to the involvement of the empire of japan at least the scale of their involvement uh the scale of the involvement of uh, italy and, and the other countries that are clearly joining powers um with with um germany mm-hmm. so i understand that he probably didn't have the foresight of I need to protect the sanctity of the traditions of Washington, you know? He probably, in his mind, thought if 
the war had picked up during his term, his second term, that that Washington would have stayed because he needed to protect the country and he was the only leader that he could have done. Like that's probably the reasoning that he had behind his decision making. But at the same time is it feels dirty. I don't know, it feels greedy, <laughs> I should say. Yeah, yeah. I mean I under yeah, it is a very mixed bag for me. I think back then just given how I don't know uncertain the world fell at that point and I don't again I don't really have a good idea of like what the vibe was in the U.S. as much as I would want to to kind of like think about what voters how seriously voters were taking the wars in Europe I mean like I would I could imagine that it had to be on everybody's minds to some extent um because I mean even at this time, you know, as, as popular as FDR is, like, just winning a winning three elections, like, I mean, even the people who had attempted it, it was very, it was like very much a long shot, you know. And so, um, you know, I think that yeah, if you know he won democratically, I mean, I, it wasn't against the Constitution at that point. Like, in fairness to him, like you know, it was all, I mean, it was all good to go in that sense, right? So, I don't necessarily put that as like a a bad thing for our democracy at that point, especially, you know, he didn't even know what World War II was going to be really like in at the end of it all with just how much destruction, you know, it all amounted to. And at that point, it was already like, you know, well, crazy. yeah, but also <laughs> not only destruction. Well, it's kind of like the, the double edged sword in where and we've mentioned this before, so this is not like we're not breaking ground here, but the double-edged sword of the pure destruction that it caused, not only out, out there, but on the soldiers that came back and how yeah. arguably, like, maybe hot take, but vast majority of mental illnesses, vast majority of broken homes, vast, vast majority of fucked up relationships came from PTSD of World War Two, and because that's the greatest generation. And, that's, and World War I. World War I yeah. Even but, like, you know, the... Yeah. The, ba- the baby movers came from those soldiers that came back, essentially. And that was well, one of the biggest generations of ever. So mm-hmm. all of that has trickled down to what society is today. So the rem- ramifications of that war is countless. But at the same time, thanks to that war, we became an economical powerhouse. You know? Yeah. I mean, thanks to that war, I mean, like, yeah, this country is so much different than probably what it i mean if that war doesn't happen i don't really know like where we are today um but yeah yeah there's a lot i mean world war ii is just like you know i don't like obsessing about it or anything or like think about it too much but it is just kind of like still the most probably the most historic you know significant historical event that's happened i mean at least in the past 150 years i, I don't know i mean like yeah there's that's kind of a hard thing to even say because so many things happen but it just changed so much so you know even with roosevelt's win you know americans didn't think that you know war was necessarily right around the corner in 1940 you know roosevelt kept those ambitions quiet enough among the public while continuing to provide increased aid to britain over the course of 1941 but by then germany was now in the process of invading the soviet union with operation barbarossa while 
can still still conducting bombing campaigns all over Britain. And though there were some engagements with American ships and German submarines without, you know, any direct attack, there wasn't a route for the American military to enter the war. So FDR, you know, just well as well pre- prepared for continuing the course of just providing arms and hoping for the best. Japan, though, was growing more bitter by the year of FDR's blatant attempt to stop the momentum in the Pacific. When they invaded southern Indochina in the summer of 1941, Roosevelt responded by freezing Japan's assets in the United States and restricting its access to petroleum products. And so this essentially pushes Japan over the limit as they made the calculation that they would not be able to achieve their imperial objectives without confronting the U.S. And so they decided to bring them into the war, but not without trying to take out most of their navy in the process. Pearl Harbor was devastating, don't get me wrong, but there was some fortune for the U.S. in that much of its fleet avoided destruction, as you know, many of their carriers and ships had not been in Pearl Harbor during the time of the attacks. It was a pretty big intelligence failure from the Japanese, and you know, their attack was supposed to be you know, much more catastrophic to the morale of Americans and their military in preparing to fight a war with the majority of the Navy destroyed. Of course, instead, the attacks put the nation into a you know a war hungry fervor. Isolationism disappeared in the U.S. overnight, and Americans overwhelmingly demanded retaliation. In hindsight, you know Japan you know made a huge mistake. I think you know well at least in the sense of like their perspective here in Pearl Harbor. You know any hopes the Axis powers had of holding on to power, I would say, were dependent on the U.S. not entering the conflict. Um, We produced and exported more goods and essential materials needed for building weapons than any country by far. And we had a huge population that was still in need of consistent employment. It's hard to capture just how much the war does to change the fortunes of the country, which, again, I know doesn't sound right saying out loud. But But it's the truth. Yeah. It's a sad reality and where, I mean, a lot of people correctly question why we invest so much in military and it's because we are founded on it we are our foundation is our military prowess and and it's obviously has failed recently but for our long ass track record that was the way to rebound our economy yeah yeah i mean it's still it still has such a huge i mean people always ask why like it's like popular in both parties now. Like, why is so much money spent on defense? Like, why is our defense budget this massive? And it's, I don't think people realize it's because it makes the country money. <laughs> like, they don't like it, they just think that it all like kind of goes to like this. I mean, I, first of all, I think the defense department like just wastes a lot of money, and there's a lot of fraud in that. But at the same time, like it's a it's a profiteering like type of um you know type of enterprise like where like we want to power weapon making company like people who make weapons for us or america like american companies that make weapons to still be able to you know not only sell and buy weapons but also to just like have control like over the international landscape by you know kind of controlling like the means of production of weaponry around the world and so you know, like our defense department is part of like why we are like still maintaining like this number one economic, you know, I guess standing in the world because 
Yeah, and why so nobody <laughs> and why nobody fucks with us essentially too. Right. I mean that's why everyone still, you know, like goes with like using the dollar as an international international currency. Like it's just like you it's it's a bigger pain in the ass to, you know, be our enemy than it is to just comply. You know, that's yeah. essentially <laughs> that's essentially what it is. Uh, it doesn't feel good to say again. And I mean, I know, I mean, th- that's saying there are good things that the U.S. does, even like with like their defense budget. Right. It's just it's all very complicated. So I'm not trying to like paint like a pick, paint a whole like thing over. It. I just am trying to add some nuance into into some of this, like in terms of like why our defense department is good and bad and like, you know, why it's so large. <laughs> um, but even like, you know, with. With Pearl Harbor, you know, it doesn't even change, you know, the country militarily. It changes the country on a cultural and social level as well. You know, every industry in the U.S. shifted its focus completely towards the war. Groups that were discriminated out of the workforce, like women and African-Americans, were now welcomed in and heavily relied upon for increasing wartime production. And this change was huge as... It helped to catapult the civil rights and feminist movements that followed in the 50s and 60s by, you know, kind of, um, you know, not destroying the social conventions, but definitely calling them in the question of the time that kept these groups from, you know, obtaining equal rights. Everyone in the country was truly working towards a single purpose for four years, and that was more powerful than anyone could have imagined. Every policy action could now be justified towards the means of helping the war effort. The U.S. government was spending more than it ever had, but Roosevelt passed through huge tax increases to make up for the deficit and secure more funding um, with little pushback because, again, it was all to the means of winning the war. He established the Office of War Mobilization in 1943 to streamline uh, leadership in decision-making for wartime production. And by 1944, the U.S. was by far the most well-equipped nation to carry on in the war producing more military aircraft than Germany, Japan, Britain, and the Soviet Union combined. And so this all-out effort this all-out effort was impressive and also not unexpected from leaders who were paying attention to the rise of American industries. FDR, you know, FDR and Churchill put many of their cards in betting on the fruition of the American military if they somehow were able to enter the conflict. Churchill even wrote after hearing of Pearl Harbor that he went to bed and slept the sleep of the saved. You know, essentially knowing that, you know, the U.S., if they... Yeah, get, they, they were forced, or the, the, the hand was forced and that they had to join. Yeah. But if they got involved, like, it was, I mean, like, again, there's all these different sayings, like, they're, you know, people call Pearl Harbor, like, when the sleeping giant awoke, essentially. Yeah. You know? And so... Really, from the moment the U.S. entered into the war, FDR and Churchill started planning for the post-world, post-war world order and how to deal with all the fallout that came with its end. For example, you know, how would Europe be rebuilt? What institutions would need to be created to prevent another world war from happening again? Who and what do all the victors control? How would they hold war criminals accountable? How do they balance the expectations of Stalin and the Soviet Union? who suffered far greater losses of civilians and soldiers than any other country. So these are all very heavy, complicated questions. And this is, I mean, I mean, to their credit, they really 
plan very far ahead, I mean, much you know further back than when it was certain that the Allies were going to win. And so the first actions for post-war planning came in the form of the Atlantic Charter, which was a joint statement from Churchill and Roosevelt outlining their plans on how to maintain peace once the war concluded. Um, and there are just, you know, some provisions in it. Simple list here. Atlantic Charter would be no territorial gains were to be sought by the United States or the United Kingdom. Territorial adjustments must be in accord with the wishes of the peoples concerned. All people had a right to self-determination. Trade barriers were to be lowered. There's to be global economic cooperation and advancement of social welfare. Participants would work for a world free of want and fear, which that one is a little bit like, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> um, the participants would work for freedom of the seas, which essentially is, again, like just another nod to free trade. Um, and there was to be disarmament of aggressor nations in a common disarmament after the war. Um, and so the Atlantic Charter kicked off conversations and organizational efforts for stronger institutions to conduct international diplomacy. In 1942, FDR and Churchill helped to get 26 nations to agree to the ideals laid out by the Charter, and the coalition became known as the United Nations, uh, with Stalin even joining by 1943. Um, and so, and you know, I also should note that the New Deal era of FDR that did not come to an end with the start, with the start of World War II. And he still pushed for economic reform at home and started planning for you know post-war domestic policy as millions of soldiers would be returning home. In June of 1944, Roosevelt passed the GI Bill into law, which would create a massive benefits program for returning soldiers. You know, benefits included low-cost mortgages, you know, low-interest loans to start a business or farm, one year of unemployment compensation, and dedicated payments of tuition and living expenses to attend high school. <coughs> Sorry. High school, college, or vocational school. So these benefits were available to all veterans who had been on active duty during the wars for at least 90 days and had been or had not been dishonorably discharged. And so... This bill is rightfully still talked about as one of the beacons in forming a healthy middle class that became the largest and most prosperous in the world in the 1950s and 60s. You know, it's very much, you know, why there's still so much nostalgia for this era of the American economy. In saying that, though, the GI Bill was highly discriminatory against black Americans as it accommodated, nah. yeah, <laughs> it accommodated Jim Crow and that. Returning soldiers who were black that had, a, you know, applied for benefits of the GI Bill, whether it was a loan or to get an education in an institution, routinely were denied access in the preceding decades. And this is where we get to FDR's very fraught record on civil rights. It's kind of hard to cleanly summarize. You know, he did he did take one very important action that opened up a ton of progress towards a U.S. that could get out of the Jim Crow era, but. At the same time, much of his New Deal programs, especially the ones enacted in the 1930s, were built in to accommodate Jim Crow itself. You know, black people could not buy new homes. They were shut out of many of the employment programs I brought up in part one. And, you know, the list could go on. But what FDR did do is he issued executive, this is executive order in 1941, 8802, which created the Fair Employment Practice Commission. Um, the order stated that the federal government 
would not hire any person based on their race, color, creed, or national origin in the federal government or defense-related administration. This was this was huge because millions of black men and women achieved better jobs and better pay as a result. You know, the, the Army had been segregated also since the Civil War, uh, been the Navy since the Wilson administration. But by 1940, you know, there was also this push, um, you know, to have a desegregate uh, or be desegregated because you know, black people overwhelmingly were switching their allegiance from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. And there was a sense that Roosevelt should deliver for this voting base that was, you know, helping him to secure all these elections. Um, He did not do that. Um, It wouldn't be until Truman who delivered on desegregating the military. Um, But again, this Fair Employment Practice Committee Um, He also signed an executive order, sorry, establishing a fair employment practice committee that prohibited discrimination by any government agency, um, including the armed forces. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of progress there and a lot of, I mean, you can't say that his civil rights record is completely like, you know, an F, I think because of these executive orders. Um, I wouldn't say that he did it out of the goodness of his heart necessarily either. I think that there was, again, just in order to keep the party strong, he recognized that this was something that he could do to secure, you know, a whole new coalition of people to, you know, be part of the Democratic Party um, for like, you know, decades onward. And also, I mean, he had a lot of influence from his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was much more of an advocate on civil rights than he was. And so, she was able to eventually kind of push him to get to these this place of of really doing you know good by you know the black community um, at least at least in this sense. So for the most part, you know his record on civil rights is a tale of two presidencies, where in his first two terms he doubles down on Jim Crow and then takes some important action in the latter third of his presidency to put the country in direction you know, on a direction out of Jim Crow for the first time since Reconstruction ended. You know, if we ended the civil rights record there, we may have a nice redeeming arc for FDR. But unfortunately, he committed one of the most brutal acts of any president on their own citizens in the last years of his presidency with executive order. Something something that that Woodrow Wilson probably envies. When he saw that, he was like, damn, I could have done that? That that would have been so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's really bad. I was trying to think of like, did Wilson do something comparable to that? I mean, German Americans definitely took a lot of hate. Um, I'm trying to remember if he actually did something specific to German Americans or if it was just communities were just destroyed because of just like people just having an anti-war one sentiment. Um, but yeah, this is bad. So Executive Order 9066 was an order that um, resolved in the internment of Japanese Americans. Uh, the order order authorized the Secretary of War and military commanders to evacuate all persons deemed a threat from the West Coast to internment camps. Um, government called these relocation centers, which took a lot of Japanese American, well, you know, most Japanese Americans away from the coasts um, into, you know, inland again, like camps essentially. Um, And although the language of the order didn't, 
you know, specify an ethnic group per se, um, you know, they proceeded to only announce curfews. Again, this was kind of like a, the process of interning Japanese Americans went, you know, step by step and it, you know, very eerily kind of similar way to how there were steps to putting people in concentration camps. I'm not trying to compare the two as if like, you know, one was, you know, just way, 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 way worse. Yeah. Right. But definitely it still had like its steps of like, first there was a curfew that was put in on Japanese Americans and, you know, many about, you know, very few actually complied. And then the next step was a forced evacuation and detention of Japanese Americans um, with a 48 hour notice. So, you know, that mean that meant that, you know, these people had only two days to try to do everything they could to, you know, protect their property, homes, businesses, um, private belongings. Like if they didn't have a friend or someone that they could hand that stuff off to, they lost those things for the rest of their lives. Um, and so the relocation centers, you know, they're, they had, you know, Essentially, they were staying in army-style type of barracks. Uh, most lived in conditions for nearly three years or more until the end of the war. One uh, would say like a like a concentration camp, almost. Yeah, yeah. I mm. mean, like it's yeah. It's you know the thing that we condemn the Germans for doing that thing. It doesn't quite. Again, I don't want to put. It's not apples to apples comparison at all, right? Like we weren't like. People weren't being murdered here, but they definitely weren't being treated well. Um, and so it's just, yeah, but it is really gross to think about a lot of similarities. Um, you know, they had common facilities, they had to use shared restrooms, limited opportunities for work. And so, you know, like educational development, like their loss of their, you know, culture and like, you know, their social norms, all of that was ripped away from them by just being relocated in a place they had never been to before and essentially jailed uh, for years. At least there is the acknowledgement from the U.S. government um, that, like, they they messed up real bad. In 1988, Congress passed and President Ronald Reagan signed into law Civil Liberties Act of 1988, acknowledged the, adjustment and the injustice of the internment camps um and it was an official apology that provided $20,000 cash payment each person to each person who was incarcerated um and so that you know was like a little bit of like a oh i don't know like throwing goodwill or it's a good acknowledgement right of just like the injustices of the past but and that was just like i don't know the fact that it was just only targeted at one group when we were fighting against, you know, so many, you know, we're fighting against Italians, fighting against Germans. Yep. I mean, like, no other group was targeted, but Japanese. I mean, I get it. They, they, that country attacked U.S. soil. So, you know, I get the heated, the heated response, but... Like you're saying, like our country is, you know, for, for um, even though people don't want to admit or accept that, um, it, it is a hundred percent a 
immigrant country. Literally every single nation was in there. And all the nations were fighting. And not all of them were allies. So it's just stupid that... Not stupid, I get it. It's the heart, it's the heat of the the moment, and the I can't believe somebody actually touched our soil type of thing. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's not much. I don't know if there's like much discussion to be had on it because, yeah, I think you know, to your point, it's just like one of these glaring examples of just a past generation just. Like, I don't know, like, yeah, you you can see these things kind of come up again, like, where, like, discrimination just gets so easily justified and, and like, the, just for, like, the sake of, like, saying, like, security reasons, right? Like, I mean, the, the, thing, the thing is that they lied to these Japanese Americans saying, like, they were putting them in these camps to protect them from the public who were going to lash out at them for the Pearl Harbor attacks, but... I mean, like, you know, if you're going to protect the public is like, is this what you call protection? Like, you know, they were like forcibly being kept there with like, you know, guns pointed at them if they had to leave. And so, um, yeah, the whole thing, you know, I'm glad that there was at least, I mean, like U.S. government doesn't necessarily admit fault very often um, for things that they did. And so I'm glad, like, even in the era in the 1980s, they were able to you know, have some kind of apology for it, have, I mean, I don't think the reparations of what happened were, I mean, $20,000, I know that's more money in 1988, but compared to what people lost, I mean, it's hard to put a price on that. Um, but at least there was something done in that sense. Um, yeah. And so, you know, moving forward, I mean, I'm not a big, I'm not going to get into like battles necessarily and try to rehash all of World War II. Um, I really more so just want to focus on, you know, kind of the end of where we kind of leave with FDR eventually dying while he's in office. Um, there's, what did he die of? Uh, that's a good question. I was actually was just about to double check that because I did not write that one down. Um, but he had been like in poor health for years and years and people were arguing for him not to run again in 1944 because of that. He just had a, he had a intricacy as a cerebral hemorrhage and he just wasn't really expected. Yeah. I mean, again, he was in poor health throughout like the latter half of his presidency. I mean, as most listeners probably know, you know, he was like, you know, paralyzed. Actually, I went over this in the last episode, but yeah, paralyzed, mostly in a wheelchair, um, and you know, just a lot of health complications that came from that. Um, and so, yeah, um, I want to kind of set the stage here for, you know, what, you know, is, is all like kind of being developed as the war is again, like certainly coming to an end in the European theater and everyone's trying to really make a decision on, on how to end the conflict in the Pacific theater. And the thing is, is that like for post-war plans, as much as like FDR and Churchill are doing all this planning to, you know, again, put together United Nations, set up international diplomacy institutions, you know, think about questions of like, you know, who's going to have what land and all of that. 
you know, Stalin has very, has, you know, Russia, or not Russia, sorry, Soviet Union is coming in with a lot of leverage for being able to have power in these conversations. Because, again, like, I mean, they're essentially the ones who take down Germany, um, like, much more than, like, I mean, Britain held their own, definitely, and the U.S. definitely came in and, you know, they, they pushed Germany you know, on the Western Front, like, well, but, like... Again, but yeah, but, but, like, Britain was, like, on the verge of just yeah losing, essentially. Like, but the sole... Oper- like, you know, Hitler threw everything he had into, you know, the, into taking over Soviet Union. Like, they suffered the full brunt of everything, took the most tremendous losses, like, went through the most... Yeah, tremendous- they're the unsung heroes, for sure. Because they held on. I mean, it wasn't. If obviously, it's kind of like I, I guess it's not a it's not an accurate comparison, but kind of like what happened with with Putin and going into Ukraine. Hitler probably thought that he would he could take that land quicker before the elements mm-hmm. became such an issue. Right. And once that winter hit, and they weren't progressing like they thought they would. Everything goes to hell. Yeah, no, I mean, easily. I mean, again, I don't want to, not a World War II enthusiast, but yeah, if he just would have decided to invade like in April or then in late June, who knows what would have happened? I don't know why he waiting so long, but it was already hot there for a whole month. Doesn't make sense to me. Um, but yeah, essentially he suffers the same thing, or the German army suffers the same thing Napoleon suffered when he tried to invade Russia. They all just got frozen out eventually. Um, and yeah, I mean, even with that, though, there was still, I mean, the, the fighting was just like, you know, I think 50 million people overall died in World War II, 20 million came from the Soviet Union. So like they, they suffered immensely. Right. And so I think reasonably they had, you know, demands of like, they were going to get a big reward for, you know, really being like the main factor of stopping Hitler. Right. Um and I think, you know, in hindsight, after FDR died, like the big, the big thing that happened in 1945 was the Yalta conference. And this was like kind of like the last big thing that FDR did before he passed away. Um, you know, it's a conference in Crimea, um, in Ukraine, um, where well, I guess at this time, it's like, you know, at war right now. And at that time, I guess it was part of the Soviet Union. But um, yeah, they met there. Um, Churchill, FDR, Stalin to discuss post-war plans, you know, how Germany was going to be divided up, you know, how Europe itself really was going to be divided up. Um, And people think that FDR ceded way too much power to Stalin. But I mean, I don't think that you could have gotten Stalin to agree to terms without, you know, giving him pretty much the whole Eastern Bloc of Europe. And I mean, I think it's it was, just though. What? I think they earned it to a certain degree. Yeah, to a certain degree. I mean, what what was agreed upon is like you know the nations like you know think of uh, like you know Slovakia, Estonia. I don't even know actually Estonia didn't even exist then. Like, but Poland, um, Yugoslavia was created. Uh, Hungary. You know these nations all had to have um, governments that were friendly 
to Soviet <clears throat> to the Soviet Union, especially they were like essentially they were more so like puppet states to the Soviet Union. And then they of course would control Eastern Germany as well. Um, you know, and they brought France to the fold where France would control part of Germany, UK would control part of it, the US would. Um, and yeah, you know, that's that's kind of you know, when when the Yalta conference ended and there was this agreement that, you know, there was like they had a solid plan for how they're going to carry out the post-war plans. You know, everyone thought that that was great. And also German, Russia, gosh, the Soviet Union, I should say, promised to get involved in the Pacific theater of the war now that, you know, the European theater was coming to an end. Um, But yeah, you know, that kind of isn't even needed because there's a whole atomic bomb program uh, that's happening with the Manhattan Project that, this podcast was so busy, I couldn't even really get into that whole thing. But I mean, that's definitely taken off in popular culture again with <clears throat> how significant that development was. Um, no, yeah, it's the, that's the issue with not only having the only president that took four ter- terms, he also did it during <laughs> one of the wildest uh, wars to ever hit the global stage so so many things and, and also we didn't even touch on like obviously we we let grow uh we we mentioned the the production of all the weapons and everything that went into the efforts of everything that went into supporting the war effort but we also should mention, at least I feel like we should, how the woman force stood stood in place of all the men that left mm-hmm. for war, and right. all the ladies showcased that women could and should be part of the workforce, that they literally kept the country running while the men were at war, and essentially that economic boom were was built on on their backs yeah yeah no 100 percent. i mean like that's again like what earlier with just like yeah the feminist movement's kind of being bored out pearl harbor i mean it was because right like they they were needed to again like you said provide the whole like wartime production machinery like for the soldiers that were fighting abroad i mean like they were you know, working alongside men more so than they were in like the fifties and, you know, into the sixties. Like, and so of course, like the women that were doing that after world war two, or, you know, like what the heck, like we showed that we could do this, that we could work alongside men and do the same jobs as they do. Right. Like, and so, yeah, I mean, I think the war again, like things that are disasters and, I mean, I should say disasters, things that like are just catastrophic and do horrific things to the world. I mean, like it's it's kind of wild, like, you know, the good that can follow from all of that, too. Like, I mean, it, again, it's socially transformed the world. <laughs> like, No, yeah. And also, like, just to bring it down to my cynicism, um, how people just become rich and powerful off those disasters and those. You know, there's so many millionaires that, you know, there's so many generational wealth that was born from that, from that war. Um, mm-hmm. 
that people to still today have like trust funds and are like established as millionaires, billionaires, just because their granddaddy took advantage of, of this pure chaos and found the lane and mm-hmm. build a, a, build a, an economy, build a, a, a company off it. Can I say a fun fact that I, I once heard in a podcast, I don't know what podcast I heard it from, but, um, the, did you know that the coffee break was invented due to the fact that this, um, lace fancy handkerchief company had to hire women, uh, during those times, uh, to keep up with the demand and the owners were, and the managers and the owners were like, well, they're doing an amazing job. They're doing great, but they're not producing at the same rate as before. And he asked them like, Hey, what, what can we do to, to, um, yeah, yeah. get the same production. Yeah. And they were like, well, if you give me, man, if you, you give, give me a, a break every now and again, maybe give me some coffee, something to drink, something to eat. Uh, I would come back rejuvenated and I would pick it up. So the reason why the 15-minute coffee break was implemented and that's and the reason why people to this day do it, it's not because it's a right for the employee to take a break. It's because it was proven after the implementation of that 15-minute break that production actually increased because obviously the workforce is caffeinated. They're, they have more energy because they have a drug in their system mm-hmm. and they could make more handkerchiefs. Yeah. I mean, there you go. This is going to be, thank you women for everything that's followed after that. I mean, four day work week, right? Like, I, I feel like that's a, <laughs> just expands into that. Like, um, you know, why don't we just do like four days of working and being super productive rather than like five days at this point? Um, like we were doing, I mean, I just feel like now that we're in like the 2020s, right? We don't need to be working the same amount of hours that we were in like the 19th. Well, I, th- I, I thought that we were headed that way. And, and I thought that um, working from home was proving that. But now more and more I see people being forced to come back to the offices and yeah. being excluded from the right of working from home. So I don't know. The yeah. more things change, the more they say the same, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's is annoying. Um, yeah, so you know, all that to say, like, there's not a neat way to summarize this to really put this episode to an end because FDR again, kind of just like, you know, his death is just a shock. You know, it. Uh, well, it, not a shock to the people that know. That's, that's the Probably know. for the country. Yeah, but it sows more i mean it kind of it does a lot of um you know like there there is a lot of setbacks in the sense that like if you would have stayed alive you probably had a much smoother transition to the post-war period mainly because stalin then decides to just like not trust you know the yalta conference and all the agreements that were made and truman also kind of sends indications that he's not really behind the plans that they set out at the yalta conference um, and again, this is where criticism kind of gets lobbied over at FDR for agreeing to these terms. Um, and so it kind of, again, starts the post-war period off on the wrong foot with the Soviet Union and that there is already tension right away. 
Um, whereas FDR, I mean, Stalin was never like a, you know, a person that was easy to, to negotiate with, but they had a certain level of trust with one another that was much more stabilized into the world than what followed with Truman and, and Stalin. And so, you know, it's, it's a jam packed presidency, a very long presidency. Um, and I don't, there's so, I don't know if, I don't know if I asked you this during the Truman episode, but do you think, uh, if the ER drops the bomb? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think he does. I think he does the same thing, you know, because there's just no way that I think any, I mean, I think most American presidents do because, I mean, you're already, you already have gone through like so much, like everyone's so used to mass death at this point. And like, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt them, I think, in the way that we would see that situation today. Like, and so, you know, how can you face your constituents? Because it's the us versus them thing. Like, would you rather have, you know, equal amount of people die, but 250,000 of them are U.S. soldiers rather than, you know, like it, it's it's very, very ugly to even again, like it's hard to say it's out loud, but Japanese soldiers and civilians, you know, like it's just an us it's, it's put into this us versus them context. And we're still at war. You know, Japanese aren't surrendering yet. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that Roosevelt does the same thing because all the mil- you know, all their military advisors are saying it's going to take. It's, you know, everybody who had died in the Pacific theater of the war at that point, it was going to take the same amount of death to happen all over again just to invade, you know, mainland Japan. So I think with that frame in mind, if that's what FDR would have believed, he would have dropped those bombs. And and he also, I mean, he directed the Manhattan Project. I mean, uh, Einstein wrote to him, you know, and like this was his this was this his thing that he created. So, I mean, it'd be hard for me to believe that he wouldn't even be, like, it wouldn't be an easier decision for him, you know? Like, I don't know. So, yeah, I think, like I said, it's it's just a horrible, horrible thing. I got I mean, World War II, again, it's just, like, there's just so much that, there's so much that it does to the world. I, yeah, yeah, it's wild. <laughs> so what yeah. do you think about FDR? <laughs> um... You know, he's a massive president. Like, I, I think that, um, you know, like, it, it, people, people could take a whole course on his presidency or on him. And, yeah, like, it's it's hard, again, to do a podcast episode on, like, even, like, two-parter, because he's just, I mean, like, every president has, like, these things that you get uncomfortable with if you're going to like pick them as like one of your favorites right like that means you have to kind of like own that you know about yeah. this very ugly side of them and that's always what's been like the hardest thing about this podcast um but yeah i just think that the he really i mean i i vibe with like his compassion for like people and like making trying to make sure that everybody kind of has like the safety net. I mean, I like what he did in terms of like the everything really within the new deal and trying to 
make the federal government like a much more responsible actor in like caring for its people. Like I'm very much on that side of, you know, I'm not a very big limited government person um, in my own political tastes. Um, I mean, I think it's, I think in some cases, yes, but like in terms of like the economy, I think the federal government at this point should be a responsible actor that like is heavily involved with, with making decisions on the economy. So all of that, like, you know, like I'm, I'm very much like a big proponent of like Teddy and FDR in the, in that realm. And so, um, in trying to like, you know, control greed from corporations and from people like, you know, monopolizing industries and taking advantage and exploiting people. Like I think the Roosevelt's are great for the country and like in just, you know, giving workers the right to try to, you know, fight these forces and giving the government the tools to try to fight these forces, even if they don't always, you know, do well at fighting them, right? And that's, I don't think that's their fault. I think that they gave like a very good attempt at doing that. So, and I thought he handled the isolationism, like sentiment in towing that line very well in foreign policy too. You know, I don't think that he did anything i mean again like the, the biggest stain is just the japanese internment camps like japanese american internment camps like it's just yeah well that and that and his treatment of yeah and jim and his jim crow jim crow and his lack of leadership during the depression well that you know all his economic uh, policies dragged the, uh, the the great depression and he was only saved because yeah war. yeah i mean i think that he well i don't know if i think he still could have kept winning re-election because like again his new deal programs at least were like at least were trying i mean they were very firmly trying to help normal people right um you know, he wasn't getting the economy back on track too I mean, he was making some mistakes in that realm but like yeah it's kind of hard because he just he get, it's not fair at the same time because he gets so many years and he gets he gets the most significant moments in American history. So like, of course he's always going to be ranked super, super high on lists because this is kind of like where the U S pivots into like, again, like the most powerful country in the world with all of these, like, you know, um, just developments again. And like, like just all the things that follow his presidency and where like the nation is thriving economically and technologically, like is born, I mean, it all, like, the credit goes to him in a lot of those ways. And, you know, like, it's hard to not, it's hard to not give him credit for it. So, yeah, like, he's going to be high on my list. Like, he's going to be a top 10 president, maybe a top five president. <laughs> um, actually, he probably will be a top five president. So, yeah, all that to say that still, like, we, we never, I mean, our president's, always have something shitty to say about you know like yeah it's just it's tough <laughs> all right so we've come finally to everybody's favorite segment where i make neil pick his favorite president of all time legally binding the last time around Teddy roosevelt finally dethroned dwight d del lgbt please and now he gets to face his distant cousin, F. Big D. R. Now, who's your favorite president of all time? 
Uh, I really don't know what to say for this one. I know I'm not. All right, I'm leading one, but I think I think because there's just there's too much there's too much ugliness there. Like like Teddy also doesn't do. Yeah, I, I, I'm having like a hard time because there, there's like a civil rights like competition I'm having between the two, where like Teddy doesn't really do anything at all, <laughs> like. If anything, I mean, like, he has, like, a net negative on civil rights, while, like, FDR maybe like, I guess he also has a net negative. I'm trying to figure out which one is greater. <laughs> um, maybe the one that threw Japanese-Americans in an internment camp. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, but... I not, mean, not to sway your vote. Not to sway your vote. Like, revolutionizing, like, the way our federal government works, like, that is huge but also like you know i think you know teddy just revolutionizes the office of the presidency like the, the, it's just really really close i'm gonna give it to teddy i think that he <laughs> i didn't expect that honestly i <laughs> thought you were gonna do a, a a truman and pick the guy that won the war no no i wow i, yeah, I think wow. teddy just barely, just barely edges him out you know, you're not a champ. You're not a true champ until you defend your, your title. So <laughs> there you go. Teddy is a legitimate champion of the unprecedented podcast. Back-to-back wins. He takes down arguably one of the most popular presidents outside of him to hold the Roosevelt last name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the most, I mean, to many historians, the best president in history. So good job, Teddy. But, you know, is it fair? Is it, uh, I guess that's another question for another day, but do you think typically historians lean Democrat? Um, I think in 2023, yes. All right, so there you go. Teddy, <laughs> our champion, my boy Teddy, I didn't expect him to be up there. But there he is, and now he only has the small task of taking on the great liberator, right? Who is going up against our boy Teddy in our next episode, Neil? Yeah, I don't think it gets easier, actually. Somehow, no. <laughs> he went from... You set him up for failure, but at least from... he's winning so far. Yeah, most historians, if they don't pick up the R, they pick this next guy, and that's going to be Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> All right, good old Abe, theater enthusiast, Abraham yep. Lincoln. So stay tuned. We're almost done. We got Honest Abe and uh, Commander Washington, and then we're done. We're, we have covered all the presidents that we wanted to cover. So this was a good two-parter. FDR is a very heavy-loaded, heavy-handed a lot of historical context needed to understand him easily could have been a full season just depict, just exploring all the ins and outs of his rise, his four terms, his efforts in the war. But two episodes is all we can do. <laughs> well said. Yeah. We got to keep going. Um so we'll see you in 2 weeks and uh bye. Thank you.